Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm in Matthew chapter 27. Jesus has just given up his spirit voluntarily, breathed his last, and committed his spirit into his Father's care. And I'm going to take up now the events that happened between the crucifixion and the resurrection. These events are usually not talked about too much, but they're very, very interesting, especially for, for apologetic reasons, because it shows that the gospel histories of the resurrection and its antecedent events have to be accurate, just have to be. Jesus had to be resurrected from the dead. There's really no other plausible alternative. Matthew 27:51 says this, Suddenly the curtain of the sanctuary was split in two from top to bottom. The earth quaked and the rocks were split. Now, of course, this happened right after Jesus gave up his spirit to the Father. The curtain of the sanctuary was the veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies, very famous veil. Exodus 26, 31 through 33 describes it. You were to make a veil of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and finely spun linen with a design of cherub and work doing to it. Hang it on four gold-plated posts of acacia wood that have gold hooks and that stand on four silver bases. Hang the veil under the clasp and bring the Ark of the Testimony there behind the veil. So the veil will make a separation for you between the holy place and the most holy place, or the holy of holies. So, we have the Ark of the Covenant and the holy, the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, and the veil kept people out, except for the high priest on the Day of Atonement, kept the ordinary priest out from the presence of God. That veil, this is the veil that was hanging in the temple, and it was split from top to bottom. Now, I believe it was split, or I believe the reason that symbolically it was split is because now it does not hinder people from going into the Holy of Holies. And that's perfect because Jesus had just died for the sins of the world, and now we can approach God without fear of condemnation or death because the veil is split and the way is open into the Holy of Holies, into his presence. And, of course, many people say that, and I think it's absolutely true. Let's read Hebrews 10:19 through 22 to drive that point home. Therefore, brothers, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way he has opened for us through the curtain, that is his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, that's Jesus, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Of course, the book of Hebrews is basically talking about Christianity through the eyes of the Jewish ritual and how the types of the Jewish ritual are fulfilled in the antitypes of Jesus Christ. And so this describes this perfectly, that split veil. Now, naturally, how did it split? Well, of course, you could just say it was a miracle. But notice that there was an earthquake that happened there. And I believe that was a miracle. The ti- an earthquake is not a miracle. But the timing of it right at the time of Jesus' death, there was that's, I don't think that was a coincidence. I believe that was by the hand of God. The earth quaked. And when the earth quaked, you got an earthquake the foundations of the earth are shaking. The lintels of the veil could have easily been broken. and One half of the lintel fell, pulled the curtain down with it, and split it wide open. I think that's probably what happened. It was an astonishing sight to see that veil split. I wonder what the Jews thought. The curtain had a great thickness. It was 40 cubits high from top to bottom. The earthquaking, this is typical decreation rhetoric that Old Testament prophets use to describe when there's regime change, when God destri- decides to destroy ruling authorities because of their sin. This earthquake was an indication of divine anger at what had been done, according to John Gill, a detestation of the sin of crucifying Christ. Here's an example of some of that decreation rhetoric. Then the earth shook and quaked. This is in Psalms 18, verse 7. The earth shook and quaked. 
The foundations of the mountains trembled. They shook because he burned with anger. There you have earthquakes connected up with God's anger. Nahum 1, verse 5. The mountains quake before him, and the hills melt. The earth trembles at his presence, the world and all who live in it. This is, there's lots of other rhetoric like that. That's prophetic language, and it means God is angry. John Gill says that this earthquake was an emblem, emblem of the shaking and removing of the Jewish state. I believe he's exactly right. Hebrews 12:26 says this, His voice shook the earth at that time. But now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also heaven. In other words, he shook the Jewish state and made it crumble to the ground, just like he made that temple crumble from the ground so that one stone was not left on the other in AD 70. Now this earthquake was local, I believe, because this is dealing with the land of Israel. Some people like to speculate it was all over the earth or in other places beyond Israel. I don't believe that. I believe it was in Israel. Notice that earthquake not only split the veil, it also opened up the tombs where the resurrected tombs were opened so the saints could get out, which we'll read about in the next verse. Matthew 27, verse 52. The tombs were also opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Now, this verse is only found in Matthew's gospel. It is perhaps symbolic of Jesus' conquering death through his work on the cross, as John Gill and the NIV Study Bible suggest, and I think that's reasonable. Now, there is a question of when these bodies were raised. Apparently, it was after Jesus' resurrection because we, we read verse 53. It says, and they came out of the tombs after his resurrection. But you can rejoin, you can make a rejoinder to that and say that the after refers to when they went into Jerusalem. So that verse 53 reads like this. They came out of the tombs and after his resurrection entered the holy city and appeared to many. So it's not really clear when these People came out of the tombs. Now, some people say if they came out of the tombs before the resurrection of, the, of Jesus, that cuts against his being the first fruits of the resurrection. And that's a strong idea in Scripture, this idea of Jesus being the first fruit. So let me read some scriptures, five of them, that say this. Acts 26, verse 23, that the Messiah must suffer, and that as the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light to the people. 1 Corinthians 15, 20, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. 1 Corinthians 15, 20. 23, but each in his own order, Christ the first fruits. Again, the context is resurrection of the dead there in 1 Corinthians 15. Colossians 1.18, he is also the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. Revelation 1.5, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has set us free from our sins by his blood. Okay, so Jesus is the firstborn, and if you have the bodies coming out of the tomb before Jesus did, if you, he's, he gets crucified, and at that point there's an earthquake and the bodies are raised, then, you, then somebody might say, well, now Jesus is not the first fruits. Well, I have an answer to that. Jesus was the first glorified body to raise. After all, there were others besides these, these uh, Matthew 27 saints that were raised early before Jesus. How about Lazarus? He was raised before Jesus. How about the widow of Nain's son? But they weren't raised glorified. That's the difference. Jesus was raised glorified. He was the first fruits to. He was the first fruit of those who were resurrected to their glorified bodies. So I don't think that's a problem. So I'm going to assume that the tombs are open when Jesus died. There was an earthquake. The veil of the temple was split, and then the bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And this just adds to the credibility of the gospel because it says they were seen everywhere in another scripture somewhere. They were seen everywhere. In, in the next scripture, verse 53, they entered the holy city, Jerusalem, and appeared to many. So you got more witnesses. These guys say, man, we were dead. We were in heaven. And all of a sudden now, 
Here we are again. I'm telling you what Jesus talked about resurrection. It's true. It's real. There is an afterlife. We were there. They had a near-death experience. Well, they didn't have a near-death experience, but they had a, a coming back from heaven experience like so many people today have with these near-death experiences. More testimony that the gospel is true. Now, John Gill says that this resurrection of these Matthew 27 saints here fulfilled Isaiah 26:19. Isaiah 26:19 says this, Your dead will live, their bodies will rise. Awake and sing, you who dwell in the dust, for you will be covered with the morning dew, and the earth will bring out the departed spirits. Well, I don't know if that's referring to this resurrection. How do you know it doesn't refer to the resurrection at the end of the world? I don't know. Some people actually say that the bodies were not resurrected, that they were merely thrown up and exposed to view by the earthquake. Adam Clark mentions this view and that they continued above ground until after Christ's resurrection, and then they were resurrected. I don't believe that. That's interesting, but I don't believe it. Matthew 27, verse 53. And they came out of the tombs after his resurrection. After his resurrection entered the Holy Center and appeared to many. And again, if my view of this is right, that means that that should be translated, and they came out of the tombs. They came out of the tombs, and after his resurrection, they entered the Holy Spirit City and appeared to many. Why is Jerusalem called the Holy City? Because the temple was there. The city actually wasn't very holy at all. It was very evil and it was destroyed in AD 70. It murdered the Son of God, but it was just the taste. It's like in South Carolina, we call Charleston the holy city. I want to tell you something Charleston is not a holy city, but we call it that. They have special privileges. I remember when it was illegal to have liquor by the drink in South Carolina, but it didn't apply. The law didn't apply as a practical matter to Charleston because Charleston was the holy city. Now, the fact that these resurrected saints, these Matthew 27 resurrected saints appeared to many in Jerusalem, established the truth of Jesus' resurrection. They witnessed to that resurrection. Matthew 27, verse 54, when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they were terrified and said, this really was God's son. The centurion is the guy that was in charge of the four soldiers who were guarding Jesus, probably. They were all terrified, and they said, and when you say they, does that mean all five of them or just the centurion or the centurion and one of them? I don't know. But some of them said, this man really was God's son. Now, what, is they, what did they mean by God's son? Well, here's some options. This could have been a Christian confession. Then if a study Bible leans toward that, and I do too, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown said that was a Christian confession. They were saved. Sounds like he's contradicting the mockery of the Jews back in verse 40 where the Jews were saying, ah, oh, the one who would demolish the sanctuary and rebuild it in three days, save yourself as they taunted Jesus on the cross as they walked by. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. But the centurion says, uh-uh, man, there's an earthquake. There's darkness all over the land. There's earthquake. And a dying man shouts out, into, you know, into your hands I commend my spirit. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Uh-uh, this is not an ordinary criminal here. This guy is something special. And they saw it, and they said he was the Son of God. John Gill says, on the other hand, another option is that Jesus is a God that's favored by the, excuse me, Jesus is someone who is favored by the pagan gods. This man really was God's son. This man really was Zeus's son. I hope that's not what they meant. Or Adam Clark mentions that maybe they're just talking about he was a hero, like a Greek hero, like Hercules. I hope he was saved. Matthew 27, verse 55. Many women who had followed Jesus from Galilee and ministered to him were there, looking on from a distance. Now, these women who looked on from a distance, and we can look in the parallel passages, and I'm quoting from memory here, that one of them was Salome, one of them was Joanna, the wife of Herod's, Herod Antipas' steward, Chusa. There was 
Salome is apparently the mother of James and John, the son of Zebedee, so she was the wife of Zebedee. So we got Joanna, we've got Salome, and there was another woman named Susanna. Well, I'm not going to worry about those. We're going to look at the Marys. And there were three Marys there looking on from a distance. There was the Virgin Mary, the mother of Jesus. Then there was Mary Magdalene, from whom seven spirits had been cast out and whom every church tradition has said was a prostitute converted by Jesus, but that's not necessarily so. And then there's a third Mary that's not talked about too much, Mary, the, the wife of Cleophas, who is also known Alphaeus, and the mother of James the Younger, the son of Alphaeus, and Joseph. But let me say this. You can get a Ph.D. in New Testament scholarship trying to figure out who these women were and it's because the jews had this awful habit of calling everybody by the first name and not distinguish them how many marys are they it reminds me in china the chinese people love to get english names when they learn to speak english but they don't realize that you have to put a family name with the first name or nobody's going to know who they're talking about and i had about 150 students and 50 of them were named mary so i said do not tell me your english name anymore i don't want to hear it because i can't i don't know who you are well, that's what the Jews did. They got one name. And so it's extremely confusing. And I'll mention some of that confusion as we go through, but I'm going to try to make it as simple as I can. Now, notice the women were there looking on from a distance, but where were the disciples? How about Peter, the one he said he would follow Jesus even to the death? Was he there? No, he had skedaddled out of there. John was the only one there at the crucifixion. All the other ten had gone. One, of course, was Judas who had betrayed Jesus. The other ten had scrammed. John was had John was the only one that was there. He ended up taking Mary into his house to take care of her after Jesus died. Here's what Adam Clark says about these women. Quote, to their everlasting honor, these women evidenced more courage and affectionate attachment to their Lord and Master than the disciples did, who had promised to die with him rather than forsake him. Why were they standing at a distance? Perhaps the crowd of mocking people and the soldiers separated them from Jesus. It's hard for the women to push through all that. Or perhaps it was because the women were modest and didn't want to see naked men hanging on the cross. I don't know why, but they weren't. They didn't stand right up next to where all those mockers were. Now, they had ministered to Jesus in Galilee, it says. Here's an example of that in Luke 8, verses 2 through 3. And this is where we get some of the names of these women. And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. Mary called Magdalene. Magdala was a city on the west coast of the Sea of Galilee, south, southwest coast. Seven demons had come out of her. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Chusa, I can't pronounce that name, the Hebrew way. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod, Steward, Susanna, and many others who were supporting them from their possessions. So there was a lot of women there. We don't know exactly who they were, but it could have been these three here. Matthew 27, 56. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. All right, now we're going to take Matthew 27, 56, and we're going to compare some parallel passages. Mark 16, 9 says, Early on the first day of the week, after he had risen, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had driven seven demons. That's in Mark 16, 9, Luke 8, 2. And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. Mary called Magdalene. Seven demons had come out of her. So Mary Magdalene was famous for being the host to seven demons. And by the way, Mary's gotten, she's often accused of being a prostitute. And that's because Magdalene was famous for having a bunch of whores there. It was a whore city. Just because she lived there doesn't mean she was a prostitute. She might have been innocent as the day is long, but she did have seven de uh, demons. All right, now Mary number two, the mother of James and Joseph. We look in Mark 15:47. we see now Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, were watching where he was placed. So that he, she's there in the parallel. And then in Mark 16:1, we have when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James. 
So in Mark, she's the mother of Joseph. In Mark, in Mark 15, she's the mother of Joseph. In Mark 16, she's the mother of James. So we take, put those together and we say that this Mary was the mother of James and Joseph. And as John Gill said, she was probably the wife of Cleophas because we look at John 19:25, standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clophas, and Mary Magdalene. So now we see that Mary... The mother of Joseph and James is also the wife of Clophus. And we found another place that Clophus is another word for Alphaeus. Doesn't this get interesting? And Mary Magdalene. We know who Mary Magdalene was, but this second Mary is something else because she's said to be the wife of Clophus, who's also Alphaeus. She's said to be the mother of James the Younger, who is James Alphaeus, and the mother of Joseph. And to make it even more complicated, it says here in John 19:25, standing at the cross were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas. Does that mean that Mary, the wife of Clopas, is the Virgin Mary's sister? And which makes that a possible option is that the Virgin Mary had, after she was no longer a virgin, she had two sons named James and Joseph, who were Jesus's half-brothers. And here we have Mary, the wife of Clopas, as also we look at Mark 15 and 16, she's also the mother of James and Joseph. So people say, well, then maybe... Mary's sister, the Virgin Mary's sister, was this Mary, the wife of Clophus slash Alphaeus. Well, then you got the problem. Of why would one family have two Marys in it? Well, I, this is this is something that's is too complicated for me. I'm going to assume that this is a different Mary. I think that's easier. So here's a summary. I don't expect anybody to remember any of this. I'm just going to focus on three Marys: Mary, the Virgin Mary, Mary Magdalene, and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, the wife of Cleophas. Here's the summary, and there's some other Marys in the gospel, too, of course. you got Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus in Bethany, very well known. But they, she, I wonder why they weren't there at the cross, or at least they're not mentioned, because they live right there in Bethany. It would be logical for them to be there, but they're not mentioned. But we got these other three Marys, and that's who we're going to focus on from here on out. Here's a quote from John Gill. It is difficult to discern and distinguish these women where their names occur in the gospels, so many being called by the name of Mary. Hear, hear. And by the way... This second Mary, Mary the wife of Clophus, Sash Alphaeus, one of the disciples was James, the son of Alphaeus. So she could have been a, a mother of one of the twelve disciples. Okay, let's go to Matthew 27, verse 57. When it was evening, now this is Friday night. When it was evening, a rich man from, or I should say Friday, late Friday night, maybe at dusk. When it was evening, a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph came, who himself had become a disciple of Jesus. He, of course, was a member of the Sanhedrin. And he believed in Jesus. Arimathea was a village in the hill country of Ephraim, according to the NIV Study Bible, about 20 miles northwest of Jerusalem. It was the same place, according to, to Josephus, of Ramathiam Zophim, which is the home of Samuel the prophet. So, Aram so Joseph of Arimathea came from Samuel's hometown. In fact, the Septuagint calls Ramathiam Zophim Samuel's hometown in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew. The Septuagint calls it Arimathaeum, so, so it's kind of an interesting fact. He came, came at evening. This could be right at sunset, Friday night when the Sabbath had become, or it could be about 3 o'clock when Jesus died. I believe it was at 3 o'clock because, because he's trying to get Jesus off the cross and in a grave before Sabbath came because it was illegal to, for a man to hang on a cross on the Sabbath, and the Sabbath was fast approaching. Remember, Jesus died at 3 o'clock, Sabbath started on Friday night, according to Judas, Ju Jewish chron chronology, a uh, Jewish timekeeping practices. So the sun's going to go down in a few hours. So I believe that this is most probably, as Adam Clark says, about 3 o'clock. Joseph 
of Arimathea was afraid that Jesus would be thrown into a common grave with criminals or to be just be left out on a cross, well, maybe just thrown out on the ground unburied as he was taken off the cross. Who knows what would have happened to him? And he didn't want that to happen to him because he believed in Jesus. Now, why is, he, is it mentioned that he was a rich man? What's the big deal about that little detail? Well, it, several reasons why. First of all, it shows how Joseph had access to Pilate because Joseph is going to ask for the body. He was a big shot. He had a lot of land, a lot of money, and he had power because he was on the Sanhedrin and he would have respect and Pilate would listen to him. But even more important to that, it would show the fact that he was rich shows that prophecy is fulfilled. Isaiah 53 verse 9, they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man at his death. Well, isn't that interesting? His grave was in a rich man's tomb, just like Isaiah prophesied, Isaiah 53 9. Although he, the Messiah, had done no violence and had not spoken deceitfully. And by the way, this is a side point. It shows that rich people don't always reject Jesus. Remember Paul told Timothy, let the rich man, let the rich man that you're dealing with behave generously. He didn't say, let the rich men confess their sins and repent. He said, let them share their money. There's nothing wrong with being rich as long as you're generous with it. And there's nothing and Joseph of Arimathea, there's nothing wrong with him being rich. He gave that tomb was worth a lot of money, by the way, and he gave it away. He gave it to Jesus. He was a secret disciple. John 19:38 says this. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because of his fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might remove Jesus' body. Now, interesting question here, is that cowardice or is that wisdom and prudence to be quiet so that you don't get killed? I think people are too quick to condemn people for being cowards because whenever I am tempted to say that, I think, what would I have done in that situation? Would I have gone around saying, yeah, I'm a Christian, bang, I would have been arrested, carted off, crucified, that would be the end of the into me. So I'm not sure that it was uh, cowardice. I think it was probably prudence. But anyway, Joseph of Arimathea, this is in John 19:38, asked Pilate that he might remove Jesus' body. Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took his body away. So this secret disciple did better than the public disciples who mostly ran. So here's a quote from Jameson Fawcett and Brown. Quote, he who was a coward before because he was a secret disciple. Now, say Jameson Fawcett Brown called him a coward. I, I'm not willing to do that, but J Jameson Fawcett and Brown do. He who was a coward before now acts a more open, fearless part than any of the disciples of our Lord. This the Holy Spirit has thought worthy of a special notice. It needed no small measure of courage to declare now for Jesus, who had been a few hours ago condemned as a blasphemer by the Jews and as a seditious person by the Romans. And this was the more remarkable in Joseph because hitherto, for fear of the Jews, he had been only a secret disciple of our Lord. This Joseph of Arimathea was in the Sanhedrin. We see that in Luke 23:50. There was a good and righteous man named Joseph, a member of the Sanhedrin. So instead of a coward, Luke calls him a good and righteous man, assuming that this is the same Joseph, and I believe it is. That's normal. Usually only a close relative like a mother would ask for a crucified man's body. Now, because remember, a crucified person is usually a horrible criminal. So it took a lot of courage for Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea to do what he did. He was waiting for the kingdom of God. Luke 23, verse 51 says this, This Joseph of, Ar of Joseph had not agreed with their plan and action. That is the Sanhedrin's plan to arrest Jesus. He was from Arimathea, a Judean town, and was looking forward to the kingdom of God. He was looking forward for the kingdom of God. And then he saw his Messiah killed. I don't know what he was thinking. I don't know if he believed that he would be resurrected from the dead. I think that was over off their radar scopes myself. Matthew 27, verse 58, we continue. 
He, Joseph of Arimathea, approached Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Then Pilate ordered that it be released. Now, what usually happens to bodies of executed criminals? They either are left unburied, as my NIV study Bible says, or they're put in a dishonored place in a pauper's field, as my NIV study Bible says, or they were burned, says Adam Clark. None of those were good options for the Messiah's body, so he asked for the body. He wanted to give it a proper honorable burial, burial, according to Jewish customs. Now, why would Pilate agree to do this? Well, Joseph was a respected leader among the Jews. He was on the Sanhedrin. He says, okay, um, I won't fight you over that. I'll let you have Jesus' body. I don't think he, Pilate cared one way or the other. Now, Pilate knew Jesus was innocent. That, that might have encouraged Pilate to let the body go to uh, Joseph of of Arimathea. Matthew 27, verse 59. So Joseph took the body, wrapped it in clean, fine linen. Now, when he says wrapped it in linen, this was according to Jewish burial customs. He also added spices to the body, then wrapped those spices with linen. This is to press the spices against the body, to touch every part of the body, to keep putrefaction and corruption from occurring. We read in John 19, verses 39 through 40, Nicodemus, who had previously come to him, Jesus at night, that's in John 3. How must I be born again? He also came bringing a mixture of about 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes. So Joseph and Nicodemus, both of whom are on the Sanhedrin, they come and they prepare Jesus' body for burial. 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes is a good bit. Joseph's a rich man. He's, he, can, he can afford it. Then they took Jesus' body and wrapped it in linen clothes with the aromatic spices according to the burial custom of the Jews. Now they plan to do another embalmment. This was a quick one. They had to do this before sundown because they couldn't do it on Saturday, the Sabbath. They were going to wait till after the Sabbath and finish the embalming process on Sunday. Luke 23, verses 56 through Luke 24, verse 1. Then they returned and prepared spices and perfumes. And they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. On the first day of the week, that Sunday, on, on, very early in the morning, they came to the tomb bring, bringing the spices they had prepared. So you see, they came back on Sunday after they had finished embalming him on Friday. That rapidly approaching Sabbath on Friday kept them from finishing the, the job on Friday. Matthew 27, verse 60. And, the, and they placed it, the body, in his new tomb. That's Joseph of Arimathea's new tomb. And that new is providential. Why is that providential? Because nobody else is buried there. And since nobody else is buried there, when somebody goes in there and sees an empty tomb, they know there's only one person that could have come out of that tomb. After all, if somebody else had come out, the Jews could have said, Ah, oh, wait a minute, it wasn't Jesus that was raised, it was uh, somebody else. He was the only one that was in there. So they placed it in Joseph of Arimathea's new tomb, which he had cut into the rock. He left after rolling a great stone against the entrance of the tomb. And that stone is not round, it's like a disc, a circular disc. They had a they had a, a channel that they would roll that stone down the channel and roll it right in front of the of the cave entrance. By the way, the garden tomb in Israel, I really believe, I think they, you know, I don't believe hardly anything about tourist sites, but this site, and again, it's controversial, and they admit it, that they don't know for sure, but it sure looks like it to me, like that's where Jesus was buried. If, if, if it isn't, it sure fits the description good enough the way you can imagine it. Now, Joseph, of course, would have had to have help rolling that stone because it was big, big stone, too heavy for one man to move, which makes it even more remarkable when Jesus got out of there, out of that tomb. The tomb is in a garden. That's why in Israel they call it the garden tomb. John 19:41. there was a garden in the place where he was crucified. A new tomb was in the garden, so no one had yet been placed in it. And again, this is fulfills the prophecy, Isaiah 53, 9, they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man at his death. 
wonder if Joseph of Arimathea was aware of that scripture when he buried Jesus. That's kind of an interesting thought. But it was providential that he was buried in a rich man's tomb because it had to fulfill prophecy. Now, if Jesus had been buried in a common grave, the resurrection wouldn't be so distinctly marked. The chief priest would never have thought to seal the grave and set a watch. They found out where Jesus was buried, and they said, oh, we've got to stop this. They, we don't want them to steal the body, so they put a, a seal on the grave and set a watch. So it's kind of hard to do that if he's just thrown into a common grave where there's 100 bodies in one pit. How are you going to settle? How are you going to prove that the body hasn't been resurrected from the dead? It's going to be very hard to prove the lack of a resurrection. But once it's in one single grave, the Jews could set a seal, and so that makes... It, it helped the Jews prove in their mind that Jesus would not be raised from the dead by somebody stealing the body. But on the other hand, when the body disappeared, it made it even more remarkable because there was a seal on that tomb that had been broken by the resurrected Jesus. And the Jews had a hard time explaining that. I mean, they set a guard there. They put a seal on it. And all of a sudden, oh, my gosh, the tomb's empty anyway. So the fact that it was a rich man's tomb was providential. It was very important to the, cru to, to the resurrection story. A pauper's grave wouldn't have done the job. Matthew 27, verse 61. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, that's the mother, the wife of Cleophas slash Alphaeus, the mother of James and Joseph. Mary number two, I'll call her. They were there, seated there, facing the tomb. That was on Sunday. They had watched, by the way, Joseph bury, carry the, t the body to the tomb in the garden. And so they knew where he was. They knew where Jesus was buried. And so they were sitting there facing the tomb, waiting for the Sabbath to be over so they could go down there and finish preparing the body. They were going to do their prepare the body, just like Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus were going to. They wanted to observe where the body was laid as they were seated there watching, and they wanted to prepare spices and ointments to anoint his body, as John Gill says. This was a mourning position where they were seated, and they were mourning. This was not allowed by Jewish law to mourn a criminal on a cross, but Jesus was off the cross now, and so they were mourning. And these women... Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, they had witnessed the crucifixion, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. Here's a quote from Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. The courage and affection of these holy women cannot be too much admired. The strength of the Lord is perfected in weakness. For here a timid man and a few weak women acknowledge Jesus in death. When the strong and the mighty utterly forsake him, the timid man is Joseph of Arimathea, who was the secret disciple, and a few weak women. But they knew he was alive. They loved him. How do we know that the two Marys knew that Joseph had taken the body there to the to the to his tomb, to his garden tomb? Luke 23 verse 55. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed along and observed the tomb and how his body was placed. Now the Virgin Mary wasn't with the other two Marys because she had been taken to John's house by now. John 19 verse 26 through 27. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple he loved, that's John, standing there, he said to his mother, "Woman, here is your son." Then he said to the disciple, "Here is your mother." He said to John, here's your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. In other words, John, you're going to be like a mother. I'm sorry. He said to Mary, this man is going to be like your son. No, that's not right. He said to his mother, woman, here's your son. He's pointing to himself on the cross. Then he said to John, here's your mother. In other words, I want you to take care of her because she's because now she's just like your mother. And from that hour, the disciple, that's John, took her into his home. So there's John in Jerusalem in his house with the Virgin Mary. Matthew 27, verse 62. The next day, which followed the preparation day. Let me tell you what preparation day is. That's Friday, preparing for the Sabbath. That had become customary. There's a lot of controversy over this, but it just makes it very easy. If you just remember, preparation day is Friday, the day before Saturday, Sabbath. You prepare for the Sabbath on Friday. 
The next day which followed the preparation day, that would be Saturday, which follows Friday. So the next day on Saturday, the chief priest and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate. Now, there is one problem with saying that preparation day is Friday, and that's because of a verse in John 19, 14, which we need to look at. That was the day of preparation of the Passover, John says. So now it sounds like preparation day is not preparing for the Sabbath, but it's preparing for the Passover. Well, the Passover was on Thursday, and so if you prepare for the Passover, that should be on Wednesday, and we know it's Saturday, and so there's something wrong. Well, here's how you translate that verse in John 19:14. Now it was the day of the preparation of the Passover week. Because remember, Passover now, the term Passover meant the whole week, not just the day. It referred to the Passover day and the seven days that came after the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. That whole eight-day period was called a Passover. So the preparation of the Passover means the preparation for the Sabbath day, which occurred in the Passover. And John just shortened it to the preparation of the Passover. Okay, so we're talking about Friday. Prepar day of preparation is Friday. In Matthew 27, 62, it says the next day, which followed Friday. So this is on Saturday, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate. Now, what are they there for? Well, let's see what they've done so far. Here's a summary of their crime so far. They had taken counsel of how to put Jesus to death. They had employed Judas to betray Jesus. They sent a band of soldiers with Judas to arrest Jesus. They suborned false witnesses against Jesus. They moved the people to prefer Barabbas instead of Jesus. They got him condemned to death. They mocked him while he was on the cross. And notice there, these Pharisees and chief priests, the chief priests are mainly Sadducees, and the Sadducees and the Pharisees hated each other. But nah, they're all together on this. We're going to stop the Christian movement. We're not going to let this go any further. Matthew 27, verses 63 through 64. These chief priests and Pharisees said, Sir, we remember that while this deceiver was still alive, they would never use Jesus' name. They never did. According to Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, they just called him something else. The Nazarene. Or what? Anyway, he was a deceiver. Remember that while this deceiver was still alive, he said, After three days, I will rise again. Actually, Jesus had said in Matthew 12:40, for as Jonah was in the belly of the huge fish three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. And the implication from that is he was going to rise again from the dead, and the Jews apparently understood that. It's ironic that the disciples, being so depressed, did not understand that, but the, the Pharisees and the, and the chief priests, the Sadducees, they understood what Jesus said. He was going to rise again from three days, and they're going to stop that idea from getting around they're going to seal that tomb shut another time when jesus said he was going to rise again was in john 2:19. jesus answered destroy this sanctuary and i will raise it up in three days they knew what jesus was talking about he was going to rise up from the dead they knew he wasn't talking about the temple even though they were trying to get the false witnesses to say that at least that's a reasonable speculation anyway so the bad guys they know that jesus is predicted a resurrection after three days so they want to stop the disciples from stealing the body and claiming that Jesus had fulfilled his own prophecy. Verse 64, they continued to ask Pilate, Therefore, give orders that the tomb be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come, steal him, and tell the people he has been raised from the dead. Then the last deception will be worse than the first. The last deception being the so-called deception that Jesus had risen from the dead will be worse than the first deception, was, which was that Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. Now notice when they say, put a seal on the tomb they know where the tomb is now that jesus has been buried so somehow they found out i guess it wasn't hard jesus was pretty notorious by then and people saw joseph taking him off the cross and everybody saw that and they and they people saw where jesus had laid where joseph had laid jesus's body and so the pharisees knew about it 
And they said, oh, my gosh, we've got to put a seal on it. The third day, by the way, you have to go by the Jewish ways of counting days. Any part of a day counts as a day. So Friday, the crucifixion day is day one. Saturday, the Sabbath is day two. And Sunday, resurrection is day three. Even though Friday, he was only crucified on part of that day. On Sunday, he was raised on a part of that day. So that's not a problem. We go to verse 65. Matthew 27, verse 65. You have a guard of soldiers, Pilate told them. Go and make it as secure as, secure as you know how. Pilate had lent them Roman soldiers. In fact, some people speculate these Roman soldiers were the ones that were used as the temple guard and who went out and arrested Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. I always assumed the temple guard was Jewish people, kind of like Levites who were serving as, as guards of the temple, but maybe not. At any rate, we know that the people who arrested that were in the Garden of Gethsemane included Jews, but also included Roman soldiers, because the Scripture explicitly says so. But at any rate, Pilate had some, excuse me, the Jews had access to some Roman soldiers, and so they ordered the soldiers to go seal the tomb. You might say, well, why didn't the Jews just tell the Roman soldiers to go seal the tombs? Well, they knew they had authority to use those soldiers as a temple guard, but they did not know that they had authority to go use the soldiers as a night watch. So they got explicit permission from Pilate. These soldiers were probably the same that four crucified, the four that crucified Jesus, Gill says, maybe so. Go to Matthew 27, verse 66. Then they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting the guard. That seal could have been Pilate's seal, or it could have been the Sanhedrin seal, but anyway, it was sealed. It would show that if somebody stole the body, the seal would be broken, and then they could show the broken seal and say, see there, the disciples stole the body. All right, so here... Let's summarize how, by the providence of God, the situation was made perfect to prove the resurrection. This is according to John Gill. The body was laid in a new tomb where no other body had ever laid. So if the body left the tomb, it had to be Jesus' body. The tomb, second, the tomb was hewn out of rock. So there was no access to the tomb except through the door. So he, his body could not have been stolen except by going through that seal and through those Roman soldiers. Point number three, a heavy stone was rolled against the door. It's very difficult for people to move a heavy stone that heavy without somebody seeing it, seeing it, so it made it impossible for the disciples to steal the body. And number four, that stone had a seal on it. So if the seal was broken, people would know. The Jews would know and the Romans would know that somebody had stolen the body. The grave had a Roman guard around it, which provided even more witnesses of the resurrection because... In fact, they had to be bribed to, to falsely lie that they had fallen asleep. This is in Matthew 28, the next chapter. But they were having even more witnesses of the resurrection. I wonder how many of those soldiers later became Christians. And incidentally, these Roman soldiers provided security in case somebody might come in the dark and disturb Jesus' body. For example, a malicious person might want to steal the body. And after the Christians start saying, look, he's risen the bad guy could then show the dead body and said, these Christians are frauds. Well, that didn't happen. There's Roman soldiers there guarding the body. There's no way the Christians or even bad guys or the good guys, nobody could get in that tomb to steal, steal Jesus' body. It was sealed. It was a new tomb with a heavy stone door in the front. It had to be Jesus in that tomb. It was sealed with the stamp of the Jews, and the rock was too big for people to move it out of the way. Jesus rose again from the dead, folks. We'll see this in the next audio in chapter 28. I hope you enjoyed this one.